0: Genesis chapter 40, we're looking at verses 9 through 23 today. Verses 9 through 23, I'm going to go ahead and read our text, and then we'll dive into it. Genesis chapter 40, verse 9, the Word of God reads, So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph, and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me. And on the vine were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will... "'Lift up your head and restore you to your office, "'and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand "'according to your former custom "'when you were his cupbearer. "'Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you, "'and please do me a kindness "'by mentioning me to Pharaoh "'and get me out of this house. "'For I was in fact kidnapped "'from the land of the Hebrews, "'and even here I have done nothing.' that they should have put me into the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, "'I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket, there were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Then Joseph answered and said, "'This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days.'" Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh off of you. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all of his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The title of our message is Training Camp Preparation in the Pit. Training Camp Preparation in the Pits. Army Special Forces training is some of the most strenuous and demanding training in the world. It's both physically taxing and mentally exhausting. It's broken up into five phases, and that's after you've already gone through the rigor of basic training At phase one, uh, we see that the prospective soldiers are tested in their physical and psychological fitness. They're put through a ringer of grueling obstacle courses. Uh, They're forced to go on extensive marches. Uh, They're uh, challenged in different swim evaluations, and on and on and on it goes. Phase two of this Green Beret Army Special Forces training test recruits and survival and evasion skills. Here they're examined on their ability, whether or not they can work with a team, uh, whether or not um, they can use weapons and evade enemy tactics, whether or not they can stand up to the pressure of enemy interrogation. Having passed successfully those two phases, they go on to a third phase. Here in this third phase, Then they are trained to begin fulfilling specialized roles on this 12-man special forces team. They're trained in the use of weapons and the use of engineering and medical and communications so that each man will fill or each person will fill um, the specialized role that they need on that team. Phase four then, continuing on, now they're learning language and cultural skills and combative Uh, tactics for work in foreign countries, which finally gets them, after months and months and months of the hardest training and preparation in the world, gets them finally to phase five, where there is a final uh, uh, culminative exam. All their previous training, their previous knowledge, all their previous skills that they have been taught are now put to the test. Phase five is called Robin Sage. It's a five-week intensive training in which they are revealed to see who is the person who has the character, who has the resolve, and who has the ability to serve in a line of duty that requires the best of the best. As we've noted, preparation is interwoven throughout the fabric of our society from the army special forces from the green berets all the way down to the McDonald's hamburger flipper we need to train people adequately before they can do the job assigned to them and a crucial component of any kind of preparation whether it's the green berets whether it's the navy seals whether it's the football team as we talked about last team uh, last time in any preparation it's crucial that there's sufficient testing there needs to be a standard by which a man or a woman needs to be measured against in order that we can gauge whether or not they're fit for the work. And so we have doctors who have MCATs and MLEs. We have lawyers who go through LSATs and bar exams. And if you want to drive a car, you have to pass a driver. A driver's examination before they'll let you behind the wheel. And of course, sometimes we're driving down the road and we wonder do these people actually drive or do these people actually pass that test? Uh, why are they on the road? I'm not exactly sure about that. But as we're looking around, we see that preparation is needed. And, and with any good preparation, there is a standard, there is a test in which one must pass to show, yes, they have been prepared. When we think about ministry, Scripture talks about the same, uses that same theme, that same language also for ministry. It is critical that one is prepared and one is tested before they are given the assignment, before they're given the responsibility of the work. We see that elders and deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3 are tested, are tested according to their craving, whether or not they desire the work, whether they aspire to the office of of overseer or that of deacon. We see that they're tested according to their character. Do they have the moral uh, qualities that are necessary for that office? They're tested uh, according to their competency. Can they indeed, uh, for elders, can they teach? Can they manage their households well? And for deacons, can they also manage their households well? But, or excuse me, and here at Countryside, just maybe so you can have a, an understanding of how we do that here as a church, uh, for an elder, for, exen- uh, for instance, there is formal preparation before a guy is installed as an elder, right? We didn't just wake up one day and say, "Oh, you know Gary, that's a guy, man. That's an awesome, dude. Let's just let's make him an elder tomorrow," right? No, that's not how it works at all, right? Instead, there is a formal preparation. There is a process, a long, lengthy period of testing before men like Gary and our other elders have been installed to that office. So we have an application process, an interview process. They go through material that tests them on Bible knowledge and systematic theology. All of that before they go through this examination, in which they have to sit before the body of elders and are challenged in this final exam. And then there's congregational testing, in which we as the congregation look at their lives and examine them to see in their life see if they match what Scripture says. But not just for elders and deacons, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16.3 that Paul calls the church to test, to prepare for the body that would fulfill key ministry roles within the church. Paul calls upon the church to test and approve certain men to carry the relief offering of the poor down to Jerusalem. So we see in the life of the church that God cares about preparing his people for the work of ministry. In fact, as we come to our theme today of Genesis chapter 40, as I taught last week, the theme of this chapter can really be summarized for us like this. God providentially prepares his people for future ministry. God prepares. God trains, God refines, God tests his people before he sends them out to do his work. We know that this uh, preparation comes first and foremost through the equipping of the word. Ephesians 4.12 says that the uh, pastors and teachers teach the word, proclaim the word, and by that the saints are equipped through the word for the work of ministry. We are prepared and equipped by the teaching of sound doctrine. But God also has another avenue in which he trains us, another um, avenue in which he prepares his people, and that's through providential test of trial and suffering. God uses the providential circumstances in our life to mold and shape us to be the men and women that he's calling us to be, to go out and to, uh, to serve and to minister to others. And often he uses the form of trials and sufferings to do that. First Peter chapter 1 verse 6 says it uses the flames of hardship to remove our dross and to make us vessels worthy of his glory for the work that he has called us to. And as we've been looking in the life of Joseph, this is the truth of both Genesis chapter 40 and Genesis chapter 39. We see in these two chapters that Joseph is going through the training camp, but before Joseph could enjoy the promotion to the the pinnacle, he had to first be prepared, trained, and tested in the pits. And so in Genesis chapter 40, we find Joseph in the middle of his own phase of ministry, special forces training, if you would, Earlier in chapter 39, he had been tested and proven in Potiphar's house. He had been shown to be a conduit of national blessing. And now in chapter 40, we find Joseph once again being prepared in the pit. And when we use the, when we use the word pit, it's just Joseph's term, as we're going to see, for his description of what his life was like in jail. And what was the goal of God's preparation of Joseph? What was God preparing Joseph for well, what we see is that God is preparing His servant to be His prophetic mouthpiece to Pharaoh and the nations. And we saw last time that this preparation uh, began, and uh, this preparation was in three phases. We see in verses one through eight that Joseph was established first as God's prophetic mouthpiece. And we saw there that God used two acts, two providential acts, to establish. Joseph. First was a pair of treacherous offenders as we saw this chief cupbearer and chief baker sin against Pharaoh and then thrown into the jail, the exact jail that Joseph was in, and Joseph was called to oversee them. And then we also see through a second providential act, a pair of troublesome dreams. And what we talked about last time was that God was shaping, God was bending the cosmos for Joseph's sake. God was providentially at work, working in and through forces that were outside Joseph's control in order to prepare Joseph, in order to place Joseph in the perfect setting, in order to establish Joseph as God's prophet. And as God was moving providentially, what did Joseph do? Joseph kept his eyes open. Joseph kept his ears open. He was ready for that moment. He saw that circumstance. He was there ready for the opportunity, and he took advantage of it. He asked a simple question that then led to these guys unloading their trouble upon him. And so Joseph then establishes himself. He says, God is the one who can interpret dreams. And guess what? I can do, I can interpret dreams because God is the one who is enabling me to interpret dreams. So tell them to me. And so we see Joseph showcasing his faith and the one true God. But his preparation is not quite complete. He's he's made a tremendous statement of faith, but now the question is, okay, Joseph has said that he can interpret dreams. Now the question is, can he really do it? Is he actually telling the truth here? Does jo- uh, Joseph truly stand in the place as one who can speak on God's behalf? And in a, in a grander sense, is God still with Joseph? These are the questions that are going through our mind as we finish verse 8. And so that brings us then to the second phase, the second phase of this preparation, this pit training, and that is Joseph is tested. He is tested as god's prophetic mouthpiece and we see that there are two tests there are two tests here the first one is the cupbearer's dream it's in verses 9 through 15 and this first test initiates it starts by recounting the dream look at me at verse 9 so the chief cupbearer told his dream to joseph and said to him in my dream behold there was a vine in front of me And on the vine were three branches, and as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. So we see here with Joseph's confident answer in verse 8, that the cupbearer opens himself up, and he begins telling, he begins recounting in precise detail, what it was, this dream that had caused him so much consternation the night before. And so he goes forward and he tells them this dream. And I like what one commentator says here. He says, What unfolds is like what we might consider as a fast forwarded episode of a home and garden TV program as he watches this vine with three branches, and buds, and flowers, and uh, ripe grapes, and juice, and just instantaneously, just like that. So Joseph, uh, excuse me, the cupbearer is going through his dream. He says that there was a vine in front of him, which would have brought intrigue to this man because that would have pointed him back to his former occupation. He sees three branches and it's intriguing to him because they're budding, they're blossoming, they're producing ripe grapes. But if that wasn't cryptic enough, he says in addition, he also sees that he has Pharaoh's cup in his hand, which again is intriguing to this man because this symbolized his previous calling, and so he goes on as he recounts he, that he had taken the ripe grapes, he squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and then he placed the sweet wine into Pharaoh's hand. And so what we see here is this is not a nightmare, right? This is, this is a pleasant dream. This is a, 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 an exciting dream for this man as he thinks about what he has just had the night before. But then we can sense his agitation in this, right? He's in prison, He doesn't know how long he's going to be in prison. He doesn't know how much longer it's going to be in there for him until one night he has a dream. He has this dream in which all of a sudden he he sees himself performing his past duty. He sees himself once again in Pharaoh's presence. He sees himself once again handing the cup to Pharaoh. This would have been exciting. This would have been intriguing to him. He would have been asking himself, man, are my gods trying to tell me something? Uh, does this mean what I think it's going to be? Am I going to get out of here? And am I going to be back in the, in the royal courthouse and serving Pharaoh? And so this explains the, the sadness that we saw back in verse eight, the, the, the dejection that he had when he woke up with this exciting dream and he's looking for people to tell him what it means. And he can't find anybody. And so he's thinking, man, maybe this is just an empty delusion maybe this is just some fantasy I had, maybe this isn't what I think it is. That is until God brings Joseph right on time. So that brings us in verse 12, then he recounts the dream to giving the interpretation, giving the interpretation. Verse 12, then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you. Oops, sorry, stop there, verse 13. So we see here, concerning Joseph's interpretation, uh, Paul twists, gives us three helpful observations. First, he observes Joseph's discernment, and so maybe Rod could you know, start listening right here. I'm about talking about discernment, you know, jokes this morning. Uh, here's Joseph. going to give us an amazing... now I'm just kidding. Giving Rod a hard time, right? Here's Joseph showing discernment, discernment of this man's dream. And notice with me, he's, he, as he gives the interpretation, he says that the three branches are three days, right? Joseph is keenly able to discern between the metaphorical elements and the literal elements, He's able to see and understand that these three branches represent three days. But not only his discernment, we also see his skill. His skill. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. So in that, Joseph is demonstrating his skill. He doesn't get bogged down by the insignificant. Rather, Joseph focuses only on that which is essential. He's not like some prophecy commentators and teachers today that try to make a, you know big deal out of nothing. He doesn't mention the blossoms. He doesn't care about the clusters or the grapes. He's not concerned with what kind of cup Joseph had in his hand. Was this gold? Was this silver? Okay, the gold represents this. No, Joseph doesn't have any care about any of that. Rather, his focus instead is on the prisoner's outcome. He says that uh, God will lift up your head there in verse 13. And that's a key phrase. We'll see how that's compared to the next interpretation. That word, lift up your head, it's a figurative expression. And it simply denotes that this cupbearer will be lifted up out of prison. He will be lifted up out of his position. And he w- will have his case tried before Pharaoh. This is the same word used in Jeremiah chapter 52, verse 31. That's used for the Babylonian king, evil Merodach, who lifted the head of exiled king Jehoiakim out of prison before exalting the Judean king in the Babylonian royal court. So here we have Joseph saying, this is going to be your outcome. You're going to be lifted up. You're going to be brought out of prison and your case is going to be tried before Pharaoh. And here's the good news about it. You ready? You're going to be restored. He will restore you to your former office according to your former custom. It's going to be a complete reversal of events for you, Mr. Cupbearer. a total restoration. So here we have Joseph showing his skill as he interprets the stream, but also notice his precision. Notice his precision as he interprets the stream, right? Joseph is he doesn't just give a general projection. Right, he, he's not a, a fortune cookie. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? Something good is going to happen to your life sometime in the future. Right, he doesn't give a vague interpretation like that. No, rather he gives precise detail. He specifies exactly what will happen to this man in the future. He says, within three days. Specific, three days. And then he says, your head's going to be lifted up. And then he says, restore to your office. You will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand, according to your former custom, when you were his cupbearer. This is precision. And so we ask ourselves, how can a man, how can a man interpret a dream like this? Answer, because God is with Joseph. God is enabling Joseph. Joseph. God is the one whom as soon as the words leave the dreamer's mouth, God reveals their meaning to Joseph's mind. He understands, he interprets, he is divinely empowered to give the interpretation. This showcases Joseph's ability to be the one who can speak for God. So having having given The interpretation that brings us then to Joseph pleading, pleading for remembrance. Verse 14, only keep me in mind when it goes well with you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house, for I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon." And so we hear, see here, these are the emotional climax of the chapter. It is here at this point that Joseph now realizes why God brought these men into his life. He realizes now, here's my opportunity. This man is going to go back to Pharaoh. And now, the moment my possible release this opportunity has arisen and so what does he do in verse 14 he makes an earnest plea his earnest plea he says only keep me in mind when it goes well with you right when God restores you back to Pharaoh when you return back to the courts when you place that cup back into his hand I only have one request of you Mr. Cupbearer keep me in mind remember me don't forget me keep me in those little gray cells up there in that head of yours. Recall the kindness that I have shown you here. It was I who is the one who has interpreted this good news for you. And and don't just remember me. Joseph continues to go on in verse 14. He says, and as you remember me, please do me a kindness. The word therefore kindness is the word we love around here so much. It's hesed. It's loyal love. And, and in the realm of men, it just means returning kindness to one who has shown kindness to you. And so this is the same word that Rahab uses in Judges chapter 2 verse 12. As she's speaking with the spy, she says, hey guys, you know the kindness I've shown you by hiding you, by protecting you? When you come back and you take over this city, as we believe, I believe and trust in Yahweh that he is God and God alone. Show me kindness, Show me chesed, loyal love. Save and deliver us. It's the same word used in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14, as Jonathan is there with David. He says, David, you remember all the kindness I've done to you? Remember seeing how I have loved you and how I have cared for you, David? David, when God exalts you to the throne, when you become king over Israel, show me kindness. Show my household kindness. Show us loyal love. And so that's what Joseph is doing here. He's saying, Mr. Cupbearer, show me kindness, please. I have shown you such kindness and in interpreting this dream for you. Now, please do it in return. And how is he going to show him kindness? Well, by mentioning me to Pharaoh. All right, Joseph understood, as it said, that he understood what this all meant. Uh, the providential pieces that God had moved now burst open a doorway of potential hope and salvation for Joseph. He knew this privileged position of the cupbearer. He knew that he had direct access to the king. He knew that cupbearers had uh, had influence in Pharaoh's courts. They had Pharaoh's ear, and so Joseph saw this man as his ticket for freedom. And so he pleads with the cupbearer to mention him before Pharaoh in order to get him out of this house. Liberate me, please. Get me out of this house. And so, he shows his plea here on the one hand because of the great kindness they had shown to the cupbearer, but also it's because of his complete innocence. In verse 15, he continues to go on. He continues to give a reason. Here, here's why you need to mention me, to remind me, to get me out of this house. It's because, verse 15, I've done nothing wrong. He's completely innocent, right? He says in verse, uh, verse 15, he says, I was, in fact, kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. I've done nothing to be in Egypt. There's, there's absolutely no reason. I've done nothing wrong that I should be removed from my people's land and taken from my family inheritance. Rather, I've been kidnapped. I've been stolen. I've been cheated. I've been sold into slavery. I am a victim of a vicious crime here. Hear me, O cupbearer, and please save me, deliver me, get me out of here. And he goes on in verse 15. He says, not just I have done nothing wrong to be here in Egypt. He says, and even here, that is, and even in imprisonment, I have done nothing. Zip, zero, zilch, nada, nothing that they should have put me into this dungeon. As we saw that in verse 39, right? As a black widow weaved her sensual web, enticing Joseph to a death of adulterous demise, what did Joseph do? He stood fast. If Joseph has done anything, if Joseph is guilty of anything, it's this. That he's a man of outstanding integrity. If he's done anything, it's this. That he is a man of moral resolve in the face of tremendous temptation. He's done nothing that he would be in this Dungeon. The word there for dungeon is literally the word pit. It's the exact same word that Joseph uses back in chapter 37. And so what we see here then is Joseph saying he has gone from pit, chapter 37, to pit in chapter 40. He was innocent the first go around when he was thrown into the pit by his brothers. And he is innocent the second go around as he has been thrown into the pit. The pit of this jail. Now it's unsure whether this pit is literal or if it's a figurative um, speech. It could be that Joseph was literally kept in a cistern like pit within the jail. This was not uncommon. We see in Jeremiah that the prophet Jeremiah was thrown into a pit. He was thrown into a cistern as uh, the kings uh, um, didn't like what Jeremiah was preaching and so persecuted him. But the fact that Joseph was the steward of the jail, the fact that he took care of the rest of uh, the prisoners, it it makes it more likely that this is just a figure of speech, that, that Joseph is pouring out his pain. He's showing what the experience of him being in prison is like. He's likening it to this horrible pit, this terrible dungeon in which Psalm 105 says, his hands were like in fetters, his feet were like in bonds of iron. He was a man suffering in these miserable conditions. And so it is this that Joseph says, I am innocent. I have shown you kindness. Therefore, deliver me. Well, we've seen already in the first test that Joseph passed with flying colors. We see in this second test, the baker's dream that Joseph will again pass with flying colors. Again, this test begins with recounting the dream. He recounts the dream in verse 16 when the Uh, when the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head, and in the top basket, there were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head, and so we can kind of see the scene here, right, here's the cupbearer, he gets this interpretation, this guy is just elated. He's ecstatic. I'm going to get out of here. Maybe he's jumping around the jail cell, high-fiving people and just going crazy and bonkers because he's getting out of this place. He's going back to for the Pharaoh's court. And then we got the, the baker over here. Ooh. Ah, I like that. That sounds good. You know what? I'm going to ask Joseph to interpret my dream. He wants in on the action too. And so he... Recounts this dream, and like the cupbearer, the, the baker also has a dream which relates to his previous office. However, unlike the pleasant episode of an HGTV program, the baker's dream unfolds more like an episode of Food Network series Chopped. <laughs> he says, This I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets. Of white bread on my head. Again, we see that there is this relation in which the baker's dream includes the significant number three. But also, we see that there is um, a reference to the baker's past occupation. And up to this point, everything kind of looks similar until we get to the end of his recounting where he says, Here I am, I'm going to bring the food to Pharaoh. Until all of a sudden, we see this picture of birds eating them out of the basket on his head. Now, that would have been really intriguing. And so, possibly in this man's mind, something sinister, something bad was going to happen. And so, he has dejection on the other hand, thinking, hmm, what does that mean? That's kind of scary. Instead of bringing my bread to Pharaoh so that Pharaoh can have it, I have birds eating out of this basket. I don't get to Pharaoh. I don't make it to him. And so there's something else going on in this dream that brings him sadness, possibly a signal of a frightening fate. And so here's Joseph listening, and then we see Joseph interpreting. He gives the interpretation, ultimately informing this baker of his impending doom. Verse 18, Then Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, from you and will hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh off of you. Once again, we see Joseph's discernment here as he's able to navigate and, and to understand that the three baskets refer to three literal days. We also see his skill here again as he doesn't focus on, oh, I wonder what kind of food are, is in that basket and, oh, what's the flower like? What? No, he focuses on what's the, the outcome of what will happen to this baker. And so Joseph is giving this interpretation. He says, within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. You know, at this point, he's like, okay, it's going well so far. This is just like with the cupbearer's dream. Three more days, I'm out of here. Pharaoh's going to lift me up. He's going to try my case. And then Joseph says, he will lift up your head from you. It's a skillful Hebrew play on words. Joseph interprets this man's sad demise. He says, yes. Your head's going to be lifted up. It's going to be lifted up off of your shoulders. Your case is going to be considered, but Pharaoh is going to execute you, not restore you. Most likely, this would have been decapitation, and then we see that he will be hung on a tree that is impaled on a stake as a public warning to the citizens and to the royal officials of the court, And then to add insult to an already horrific death, Joseph adds this, oh, and by the way, the birds are going to eat the flesh off of you. His punishment will just continue into the afterlife because an Egyptian thought to um, not have enough of his body left over, then he wouldn't have a proper burial. He wouldn't be with his ancestors and the family tomb. This is a bad (laughs) interpretation. And we can kind of, I love Pastor Tom, to sanctify imagination. We can kind of picture the, the scene right here. A little awkward as this interpretation is going out of his mouth. Here's the cupbearer. He's rejoicing. Oh, by the way, Mr. Baker, your head's going to be executed and you are going to have birds eaten off of you. And so, kind of imagine the cupbearer here looking at him like, sorry, man. Tough one for you. And the baker, you know, his face at, at the beginning is just in trees like, oh, what's going to happen to me? And then, as the words are coming out of Joseph's mouth, you can just see his face start sinking down. And, Next thing you know maybe he's like crashing to the floor or something. Like, oh. It's interesting, right? That we don't know why the outcome is different here for the cupbearer and the baker and all that kind of stuff. You know the reason for that is, is this is instructing us. This passage is not about a cupbearer or a baker. It's not about what happens to them or what happens to him. This focus of this passage is on Joseph. The focus of this passage on it is on his ability to interpret. Dreams. And so that brings us to his precision again. Once again, we see the specificity of this gruesome death, the precision, all of it revealing Joseph's supernatural ability as one who can interpret dreams. So we saw in the first eight verses, Joseph had established himself. He said, God can reveal dreams. Tell it to me because I speak for God. He then established himself. And then we see in these verses, he is tested. They give him his dreams. Can he actually do it? Can he actually interpret as he said that he can? Joseph shows that he can. He passes with flying colors. He demonstrates discernment, skill, and precision. The only question now is, will his interpretations prove true and accurate? If no, then Joseph has failed miserably. He has shown himself to be a false prophet, a liar, one not fit to serve as God's messenger. But if yes, Joseph has proven without a shadow of a doubt that he does serve as God's prophet in the land. So that brings us to the third phase of Joseph's preparation. And it is this, Joseph is proven, proven as God's prophetic mouthpiece. And this section here gives us emphatic proof, not just some proof, but emphatic proof. That Joseph is God's prophet because we see that Joseph's interpretations are perfectly fulfilled. They're perfectly fulfilled. In fact, there are five perfectly fulfilled details that emphatically prove Joseph's interpretive abilities. Look at verse 20. We see the first detail. He says, It happened, thus it came about on the third day, just as Joseph said interpreted perfectly on the third day. The stress here, it's not the second day, not the fourth day, but the third day. And this third day, as he goes on to say, was Pharaoh's birthday. Now, Pharaoh is not celebrating his birth as we celebrate birthdays, but rather this was his ascension date, the date that he would have gotten to the throne. And Egyptian history tells us that when Pharaohs, when they came and they celebrated this day, that there were times where they would release their prisoners, they would bring them to the court. Pharaoh would try their case. Some he would let go, some he wouldn't, and that's exactly what we see here in this scene. So we see the first perfect detail is that it happened on the third day. The second perfect detail that was fulfilled is that their heads were lifted up. Verse 20, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. Just as was predicted, Pharaoh lifted up their heads. He looked over their case, and having reviewed all the facts, he makes his decision in verse 21. We see third perfect detail that was fulfilled. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office. The fourth perfect detail there in verse 21 is that he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. The cupbearer resumed his previous duties. And then we see the the fifth perfect detail that was fulfilled is that the baker was executed. He hanged the chief baker. And if for some reason, you know, we're going through this and we're kind of missing the point here, at the end of verse 22, uh, the author makes an emphatic remark here. He says that all of these things happened, these five details happened perfectly, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Just as, exactly as, perfectly as Joseph had predicted Joseph here is five for five, right? He could play on the Rangers for the World Series team here. He is batting five for five, five home runs. He has perfectly aced his test down to the most minute detail. What does this prove? It proves without a shadow of a doubt that Joseph can be God's spokesman. Paul Twist writes, quote, "...the, the cumulative force of these observ- observations..." is to emphatically validate Joseph's claim. He is God's spokesman in Egypt. His words do tell of that which is to come. The full significance of this relationship will become clear in chapter 41 when the exiled son is brought before Pharaoh. Joseph is established, tested, and proven But as we read this, it brings us back to verses 14 and 15. What's going to happen to Joseph? The cupbearer is exalted. He's back before Pharaoh. Is he going to remember Joseph? Is Joseph is this the the time of Joseph's release? Is he going to get out of here? Verse 23 Joseph is entirely forgotten. Entirely forgotten. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Joseph has been assaulted. He's been kidnapped. He's been sold into slavery. He's been tempted. He's been slandered. He's been falsely accused. He's been unfairly incarcerated. And now Joseph is entirely forgotten. Yet again, Joseph suffers by the hand of another. Eleven long years of pain and turmoil in Joseph's life. Eleven long years of agony and hardship. And we might be tempted at this point to just ask those age-old questions, where's God in all of this? God, why are you allowing Joseph to, to suffer like this? God, when, when will you deliver this man from his affliction? And the answer, of course, to all those questions is what? God is there. God is with Joseph. Joseph. Man has entirely forgotten Joseph, but God continually remembers Joseph. I love what Isaiah 43, verse 1 through 3 says, But now, thus says the Lord your Creator, O Jacob, and he who forms you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. This is the God that is with Joseph in his suffering. This is the God that is with Joseph in the pit. This is the God who is remembering Joseph in the tempestuous waters of Potiphar's house. And it is this God who is with Joseph in the darkest of nights in in the hell of the pits and not only was God with Joseph during this time God was preparing Joseph at this time God was using every evil done against Joseph to mold, shape refine and prepare him to be God's messenger to be his special servant to serve him in future ministry right admittedly for joseph it looked pretty bleak it was pretty dark he had no idea at this point why he was suffering as he did but god did god knew god was perfectly preparing joseph through all these tribulations for the work that he had in store for him brothers and sisters That God is with you today, preparing you today through that which you suffer today. God doesn't always promise to protect us from the dark pits of life, but God does promise to be with us, to walk with us through those pits. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you, God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, Jesus says in Matthew 28, 20 to his disciples, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age, Acts eighteen ten. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, Paul. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, Paul, for I am with you. Romans 8, 38 through 39, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in the created world will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God is with us. He is with us in our afflictions. But again, I say, as we learn here, it's not just that he's with us, but he is preparing us He is refining us. He is equipping us. And so, brothers and sisters, as we go through the trials of life today, maybe some in here right now, at this very moment, are suffering something grievous. Genesis chapter 40 calls to our attention two important truths. First, understand that in that suffering God is with you and print that on your mind don't let us ever forget that but the second is this is that God is wanting to use that suffering God is wanting to use that trial God is wanting to use that affliction to prepare you for future ministry I love what Paul says in second Corinthians chapter one he says we've been we've been comforted by God and we love to hear that. We love to, to know that, that God's with us. He's comforting us in our affliction. But what does Paul go on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? So that you, in turn, will be able to go and comfort others. God comforts us. God is with us in the trial so that we then can go forward and serve others and minister to others in their trials. That's what God is doing here for Joseph. He has particular ministry for Joseph in the future that Joseph has no idea, and yet we see here God preparing this man. Exhaustive preparation, intense training, thorough testing, all of these are the necessary prerequisites for Army Special Forces, for the Green Berets, one of the world's most elite fighting units. But exhaustive preparation, intense training, thorough testing, these were also the necessary requirements for Joseph as he was being prepared for the work that God had for him. The time was now ready for him to serve, chapter 41, to be God's conduit of blessing and to be God's spokesman for him. As we think about our lives, as we finish and close this time, I just want to recall One more man who also passed the ultimate test. The Lord Jesus Christ was uniquely prepared for his ministry through the things that he suffered. Hebrews 2, verse 17 through 18 says this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, and things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Listen to this: for since he himself was tempted, and that which he suffered, the Lord Jesus Christ suffered. And there's many reasons for why he suffered, but the, what the author in Hebrews says here, he suffered so that he would be prepared, so that he could be prepared to be our faithful high priest. It goes on. At the end of the verse, he has suffered in order for this. So he is able then. He is able because he knows intimately our sufferings. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Through his suffering, our Lord Jesus Christ was prepared to be the faithful high priest. Now we can go to him in our suffering and know that he is with us and that he is preparing us. And so that we can sing the words that we even sang this morning in church. They just hit me as I was singing this morning. So we can say this, Jesus, Jesus, what a help in sorrow. While the billows o'er me roll, even when my heart is breaking, my comfort helps my soul. Hallelujah, what a Savior, hallelujah, what a friend, saving, helping, keeping, loving me, he is with me till the end let's pray father you are you are god you are with us you love us and you are preparing us lord we suffer things in this life and many times we don't know why we don't know what exactly it is that we're suffering for but lord you do And Lord, we do know your truth and your word that says that you are with us in it. And we know that your word says that you are preparing us for something in it. God, please help us to hold fast to those truths today as we look at Joseph's life. And as we look ahead in chapter 41 to the the beauty of his now exaltation and rise, I pray that we would be strengthened to persevere in faith like Joseph did. Help us to persevere in faith like our Lord Jesus Christ did. And Lord, may we go to you, Christ. May we go to you in our times of need, for you are a great high priest. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.